the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, September 13th, and today Bill Cohan joins us to discuss the Goldman Sachs-Donald Trump pipeline. A bunch of Goldman alums, Gary Cohn, Dina Powell, Steve Mnuchin, and others, signed up to work for the 45th president. It worked out for some and not so much for others. But if Trump runs again, how many of them would come back for round two? Bill has the gossip. And later on, Julia Yaffe is here to give us the latest on Ukraine and Russia and whether Ukraine's stunning counteroffensive this week has put Vladimir Putin on his heels. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday the 13th, everybody. I'm joined today by Bill Cohan, who's going to talk about one of his, I would say, topics you know most about, Goldman Sachs. I wrote a book about him. You wrote a whole book about it. You wrote a whole book about mm-hmm. it. This is uh, this is right in your strike zone. Uh, and you've been doing some reporting, actually, on a political angle here, which is just sort of like ruminating on which of the many Goldman alums who worked in the Trump administration uh, might still be in his inner circle, might want to come back for round two if he runs again and wins. Some of the bold-faced names, literally on Puck.News, Gary Cohn, Dina Powell, Jay Clayton, Jim Donovan, Wilbur Ross, Steve Mnuchin. <laughs> Are any of these people still talking to Donald Trump? Well, okay. I mean, I don't talk to Donald Trump. So, although I have a few times before he became president, but not since, it's hard for me to know who keeps in touch with him. You know, we do know, for instance, that Dina Powell's husband, Dave McCormick, who was running for the Republican nomination for Senate in Pennsylvania, lost to Dr. Oz. We do know that he went down to Mar-a-Lago and asked for Trump's hand, so to speak, his support uh, in the Senate race, didn't get it, and then subsequently lost by uh, a hair to Dr. Oz, who will probably lose by a ward margin to John Fetterman. I think, you know, it's fair to say that at least the McCormick-Powell household has been in touch with uh, Donald Trump in 2022. I wouldn't be at all surprised if uh, Steve Mnuchin, who, of course, was extremely loyal to Donald Trump, uh, was his one of his finance chairmen as he was running for president and then became Treasury Secretary and served the full term. One of the few cabinet secretaries who served the full term, as did Wilbur Ross uh, as Commerce Secretary. Steve Mnuchin is now back uh, in the world of finance, running a two and a half billion dollar private equity fund. You know, so I would not be surprised if Mnuchin uh, talked to Trump. I think uh, Gary Cohn definitely does not talk to Trump uh, anymore. Yeah, can you explain why that is? You spend a good amount of detail on why that relationship is basically non-existent at this point. Well, first of all, Gary is a Democrat, and he may have been one of the only Democrats uh, that Trump had in the White House. I think he was probably as surprised as anyone when he got a call to interview to be National Economic Advisor. Uh, He had just left Goldman Sachs, where he had uh, tried uh, unsuccessfully to become the CEO of Goldman uh, when Lloyd Blankfein was uh, out getting 
treated for cancer, which he's done successfully. And Gary tried a little coup d'etat action, which did not work. And so he was shown the door at Goldman after being a loyal number two for many years, more than 10 years, and uh, then got introduced by uh, his friend, Jared Kushner, to Trump. And that led to him being appointed national economic uh, advisor. But, you know, I don't think they ever really got along. Uh, and then after Charlottesville, of course, uh, I think there was a, a rupture that was permanent. But uh, Gary decided not to leave until after the corporate tax cuts were passed. So Gary Cohn and I would say Dina Powell were two people that really got under the skin of not just Democrats, but also never Trump Republicans, because when they went in the White House, they kind of felt like it gave Trump uh, a patina of seriousness and credibility uh, on the economy and certainly on Wall Street. And there was always gossip that they were doing reputation management on background with reporters, that they were the serious people in the room projecting Trump from his worst instincts, et cetera. Yeah, I know they're two different people, but is it your sense that they've had to do some reputation management in New York since leaving office among their their pals and, you know, the, the society? Uh, you know, I think people have short memories. Dina was only there a year and she was a Republican and she had worked in a previous White House, uh, Republican White House. And Dina is extremely uh, bright and extremely charming. She, she just like, returned to Goldman uh, with a promotion uh, onto the management committee. You know, no harm, no foul there. Uh, you know, she worked uh, actively to try to get Dave elected, spending a lot of time in Pennsylvania. And now there's talk of Dave uh, potentially running for Senate again against Bob Casey in 2024. In, D in Dina's case, I would say uh, no problem. You know, she was a deputy national security advisor, you know, stayed for about a year, went back to New York, went back to Goldman and... I'd say no problem there. Gary, uh, a little more complicated. He was there longer. People were really scratching their heads because he was a Democrat. You know, how could you work for this guy? Uh, very much the argument being made, as you said, that, you know, but for me, this guy would be really off the deep end. Uh, of course, there's no evidence uh, that he was anything but always off the deep end. And then, you know, Gary was hoping to be either start his own private equity firm, which didn't happen, or be the CEO of a technology company, which didn't happen. He is on the board of several companies, uh, which did happen. I think he's uh, fine again. I don't think he's ever going to be what initial ambition was, was to be CEO of Goldman Sachs. That's not happening. You know, I'm sure he has to explain himself often to people about why he went and worked for Trump or, you know, what it was like working for Trump. You know, I'm sure he gets asked about Trump a lot. I certainly asked him about Trump a lot, so I'm sure others do too. I feel like that's the number one topic of conversation if you bump into him. So, Bill, one more person you mentioned um, didn't work at Goldman, but you write about him possibly as a Treasury Secretary in Trump's second term if Mnuchin doesn't get that job back, even though I'm sure he would love it. And that is Steve Schwartzman, who is the CEO of Blackstone. Obviously, huge name in the finance world. What's his standing with Trump and what, what would he... Is it possible that he would come into the administration if there is one? Right. A lot of ifs, right? Uh, if there is a second Trump administration, if he runs, if he's not indicted, if he's not in Dan Amora prison, 
you know, Steve Schwartzman, uh, you know, as you said, he's probably, you know, one of the most successful people who's ever worked on Wall Street. And Blackstone is one of the most successful companies uh, that has ever uh, appeared on Wall Street. And that's saying something. And, you know, Steve, who was in Skull and Bones with George W. Bush and sure was hoping that he might be Treasury Secretary in, uh, you know, a Bush administration, so I think lost out on that job to Hank Paulson in 2006. I think Steve would very much like to be Treasury Secretary. That's like the crowning achievement on his career. Of course, he's not a young uh, man anymore. Uh, he would be in his 70s, uh, late, late-ish 70s. If Trump had another administration, Steve obviously was head of Trump's CEO council, which got disbanded after Charlottesville. I mean, I just don't know if he and Donald uh, still communicate. Uh, uh, they both have big houses in Palm Beach. I would not be surprised if they do or have kept in touch. And um, I think it would be kind of a brilliant choice on Trump's part. I can't imagine Steve would say no to that, even though I'm sure he could have a much better life if he did say no. But I, I can't imagine him saying no if, if the President of the United States asked you to be Treasury Secretary and that's something you've wanted to do for a while. I, I think it would be a crowning achievement for him that he would not say no and that would finally give him uh, the reason that he probably needs to relinquish the reins at Blackstone over to his chosen successor, John Gray. Yeah, I imagine he wouldn't say no to that. Hey, last thing real quick. We were talking before taping. Are there possible layoffs, speaking of Goldman, happening at Goldman Sachs? Is that coming down the pipe? Yes, I think Goldman is reverting to their usual posture of trying to weed out the bottom 10% or so. I'm sure it'll be less than that. They're talking about hundreds of layoffs. You know, Goldman has now something like 40,000 people working for it. So I don't think we're talking about, you know, 10%. But finally, with things, quote unquote, starting to return to normal pandemic-wise and with the business investment banking, especially having cooled off considerably this year from last year and David Solomon wanting Goldman bankers to return, everybody to return to the office, uh, you know, there'll be those people who aren't willing to return who will probably find that they are no longer employed at Goldman and those who haven't been making it uh, who find themselves no longer working at Goldman. So I think, you know, this is another example of things kind of getting back to normal on Wall Street uh, post-pandemic. Well, maybe there'll be a job for them next year on the Trump campaign. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Who knows? <laughs> All right, Bill. Thanks so much. Have a great week, man. Talk soon. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate it. When we come back, Ben Landy is here with Julia Yaffe to give us an update on the war in Ukraine. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here with Julia Yaffe. How's it going, Julia? It's going well. How are you? I'm good. And I'm really glad you're here today because last week the Ukrainian army launched a major counteroffensive in the northeast of the country. And so I wanted to ask you, because I haven't seen enough coverage of this subject, whether Ukraine's momentum and the territorial gains really represent a paradigm shift in this war, as some people are reporting or whether this is just another false dawn before Russia 
regroups its troops and hits back harder? Uh, That is the question, Ben. Basically, Ukraine has gained back more territory than Russia has gained since April. And Ukraine has managed to do that just since September 6th. So in just six days, Ukraine has managed to gain back more territory than Russia has gained in five months in the Northeast. What is incredible to me is that between this counteroffensive in the Northeast around Kharkiv and the counteroffensive that started earlier in the Southeast around Kherson, this is, strangely enough, the less ambitious plan that Ukraine went with. Apparently, there was a far more ambitious counteroffensive plan that the Ukrainian military wanted to try. And the basically, the American government was like, why don't you guys try to go for the things you can definitely get instead of biting off more than you can chew and risking emboldening Russia? And it looks like at least the northern part of the counteroffensive is going smashingly well. It looks like even the Ukrainians are kind of surprised by their success. The Russians are fleeing in such disarray that they're leaving hundreds of tanks, including in, you know, tanks in very good shape, just, you know, in the fields, on the roads. And they've abandoned Izum, which is a very important transport hub. They're having a very hard time justifying it even on state propaganda TV. It's quite the paradigm shift, at least for now. The question is going to be whether the Ukrainian military and government can come in and reinforce what they've gained, gain back political control over these areas, and make sure that Russia doesn't push back and capture this territory yet again. I presume the question is also whether Russia can conscript more troops to surge back into those territories. Yeah, that is definitely a question, but... The problem is it takes a while to conscript troops, get to get them ready, to get them equipped. Russia has a lot of equipment, but it's already kind of burned up a lot of its best stuff. Western sanctions, including the sanctions on microchips and the things it needs to rebuild, the tanks and the weapons that it's kind of throwing into the maw of this war are going to be hard to reproduce. And we have yet to see how much China is willing to help Russia on that front. Putin himself has been quite reluctant to fully mobilize the Russian population. He has tried very hard to keep the Russian population, especially in the big cities, which never really liked him all that much anyway, to keep them isolated from the effects of the war, to keep life feeling as normal as possible in kind of much the same way that Iraq and Afghanistan felt to most Americans living, say, in New York and D.C. and L.A., a very far away war that had no effect on their daily lives that was fought by a tiny portion of the American population. So if he were to go all in on some kind of wider draft, that would really upset the domestic political balance at home and might significantly damage him at home. That would be a very risky political bet domestically. I'm really curious where this goes from here. Speaking as a non-expert observer, my heuristic for understanding this conflict basically boils down to the fact that There's only a few possible outcomes, really. Ukraine retakes its territory up to either its previous borders or the the 2014 borders before the uh, the de facto annexation by Russia of Crimea and other territories. Russia could conquer the entire country, which now seems increasingly unlikely to happen, or presumably the most likely outcome, some sort of settlement between these two. Looking at that 
more limited matrix of possibilities, leaving aside other outcomes like uh, an escalation of this conflict beyond the borders of Ukraine. How do you think that this most recent counteroffensive potentially changes the calculus for the end game for the two parties? You know, I, it's funny you mentioned that. I was thinking about that exact thing as I was kind of reading up on all the news out of Ukraine and Russia this morning. I was thinking, are we getting closer to that point that we got to before the Dayton Accords, which ended the war in the former Yugoslavia? And that is the touch point that I keep going back to, which is what ended that war, uh, which was in some ways a very different war, but it it brought the two sides to the bargaining table because all the sides were just exhausted and uh, towns were taken and retaken and taken again. At what point does, A, does the battlefield solidify enough for the parties to to decide that they're not going to be able to move them much in any direction? And at which point do the parties decide that they're exhausted enough by the conflict, their populations are exhausted enough by the conflict, and that their kind of supplies are exhausted enough by the conflict to reach an agreement? So far, I think we're still far from that point. But I think we inched a little bit closer over the weekend. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in how this changes the global equation, too. You talked about the populations becoming tired with this conflict. Obviously, there's still lots of support internationally for Ukraine, especially in Europe, much more so than Moscow assumed would be the case. But there's also no question that Europe is staring down the barrel, so to speak, of a massive I mean, generationally unprecedented energy crisis that's going to hit this winter. Russia has turned off pipelines. They are threatening to choke the supply of energy into Europe even more. Is there a sense in Kiev and also I presume in Moscow that the clock right now is ticking down to a point where the sentiment throughout the continent changes in a way that may be detrimental to the Ukrainian cause? Yeah, I think... Kiev feels that they have basically until November, basically on the battlefield. Uh, I'm here in Rome and, you know, driving around, listening to the radio as in as much as I can understand of the Italian, there's so much conversation on the radio about energy prices, about what's going on in Ukraine, what Gazprom is going to do. Has the Italian government found enough alternatives to Russian gas? Have they found it in Algeria? Is that going to be enough? And now it's more and more news about this Ukrainian counteroffensive. But what you're not hearing is what, you know, you heard all over Europe and all over the U.S. with, the, you know, the heartbreaking stories of Ukrainians losing their lives and their homes, right? Right now, people are starting to care about themselves and not about Ukrainians. And I think that, again, will hit when temperatures drop. The thing is, it's a double-edged sword because, as much as Russia toys with those pipelines, that tactic has a floor. Pretty much most of Russia's gas pipelines are pointed west, not east. Russia needs Europe to buy its gas as much as Europe needs Russian gas to heat its homes. Russia can turn off the gas, but at some point it needs all that money coming from Europe. It would be starving itself and its own revenues and its own coffers. You can't just redirect gas flows on the turn of a dime to China or to India, who are more than happy to take it. That takes years and years and years. And Russia has also not really done much in diversifying its customer 
base uh, since 2014 in the same way that Europe has not done much to diversify its supplier base. Europe is facing an energy crisis, but I think there's also a lot more wiggle room than we think because Russia is dependent on Europe too. Yeah, that's a great point. And of course, Germany is talking about turning nuclear power plants back on. In England, the new prime minister is talking about subsidizing energy costs this winter. It is truly an unprecedented situation. We'll be watching to see how it all plays out. And Julia, thanks for stopping by to uh, shed some light on the situation. Happy to do so. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 